Wes Hall, welcome to the Gents Talk podcast. How are you, man? Uh, pretty good. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're really excited. We're, we're, there's a lot to talk about. The king of Bay Street. <laughs> Firstly, and, and looking dapper, I might add, with that yeah. beautiful suit. Where's that from? Well, this is custom made, man. You okay. know, this body can't just have any <laughs> kind of suit put on it. It's got to be done. So uh, my buddy Don Lee from Trend Custom Tailors, he did the shirt. He did the uh, he did the pocket squares. And, uh, you know, it's got some nice little design. It's a, nice, yeah, it's a very nice suit. got my signature in there just in oh, case wow. I misplace it someplace <laughs> and some dude try to take it. I uh, can say, no, no, that's my signature in there. So Don is uh, is a pretty cool guy, and he, he set me up pretty good. Very cool. Suits are your go-to? You know, when I started on Bay Street, um, I've never been on Bay Street before I started on Bay Street. I'm a Scarborough guy. I came from just outside the suburb, outside of Toronto. And I came here September 27, 1985, moved to Malvern. And that's our juggle in Malvern. It's very poor, middle class, I guess, uh, but it's working class people. And I got an opportunity to get a job on Bay Street, and I didn't even know what Bay Street really was. They just said, hey, there's a, a firm looking to hire someone, and they want to hire anyone. You just have to have a pulse. It was at the time when you didn't have to do big interviews. They call me up, and they go, you want a job? I said, yes. Doing what? Pushing a mail cart. Done. And I showed up. They gave me the address. I showed up. It was Commerce Court West on King and Bay. And I'm like, looking around at these tall buildings, never seen them up close before. Saw them on television, but I didn't see them up close. And I went in, took the elevator to the 13th floor. I'd never been that high in an elevator before. And I got off the elevator, and there's a show back in the 90s called L.A. Law. It was kind of like that <laughs> when I walked off the elevators. I walked off, and I saw art, and I saw beautiful you know, reception area, and people were in suits. Everybody, all the guys were wearing a suit. And they gave me, they said, here's the paper, sign it. You start on Monday. And I figured I got to wear a suit too, but I didn't own a suit. So I went to Goodwill. I found myself a suit, and I started to wear a suit ever since then. <laughs> and I was the only guy that was pushing a mail cart with a suit because all my colleagues were wearing jeans and T-shirt. But that suit kind of made me feel like I belonged there. And it really set me up to what I was going to do in the future. So ever since that time, I've been wearing suits to work. It's a little bit more jazzy now because I take a little bit more <laughs> risk yes. now. you know. But you have to wait until you get to a certain point where you can start taking risk. You can't just show up the first day and start and wearing a pink suit with a pink pocket square and a pink shirt and kicks like yes let's wait let's wait let's wait for that oh let's go yeah, you can't even do that on base street you get fired day one oh. yeah. right? you gotta wait until you establish yourself and as soon as you walk in everybody goes i didn't expect anything less from wes mm. i expect him to dress exactly like that and so that's what i've been uh that's that's the suit thing suit is my go-to but there's days when i jazz it up but suit is my go-to so walk us through that moment where you walked into that place and your eyes just opened up you go you get your suit now you're pushing the mail cart what was going through your mind did you think that this was just going to be a one-stop place or did you just immediately envision that you were going to make something no man my eyes 
I saw a life that I wanted. You got to understand when you're dreaming, your dream is based on what you see. You can dream based on what you see on television, but it's really not real because they're playing make-believe. Even if you see, if you want to be a basketball player and you see people playing basketball on television, it's kind of different because you go, everybody's on television, but it's all fake. If you go to a basketball game and you see the game, you're going to go, these guys are really good. I will never be that good. And your dream could either die or you can go, if they're doing it like that, I can do it like that too. So in Scarborough, my dreams were based on my experience of what I saw around me. And what I saw around me were blue-collar workers. There were no office workers really around me. My dad was working at a factory. My stepmom was working at a factory. I'm going to work at a factory. That's the, that's the deal. When I went to Bay Street, I saw a different set of dreams that I felt that I could, I could be a part of. And then I started to put systems in place as to how I'm going to fit into that dream. So when I was pushing that mail cart, I was educating myself. All these offices around the perimeter, they're all lawyers. What lawyer does, what law does this guy practice? Mergers and acquisition. What's mergers and acquisition? Well, I went up to the library on the 55th floor and I started researching what M&A, then I found out about M&A. That's what they call it for short. So when I'm in my suit walking down the hallway, I would see young lawyers and they would start talking to me about their M&A deals, but they didn't know I was a male guy. <laughs> but if I was wearing male and, uh, jeans and t-shirt, they would know immediately. You were the male guy. I'm the male guy. You don't talk to the male guy. Mm. There is a hierarchy at these firms where you have the help and you have the talent. The lawyers are the talent, we're the help. You don't communicate. And so when I was wearing that suit, people were saying, hey, I'm working on this, like students, law students. I'm working on this m and deal with this lawyer, and he's this and he's that. And I start to learn the language that we're using because I went up to the library and started to educate myself. And then I realized that this is pretty cool. And uh, I just read as much as I possibly could. I talked to as many people as I possibly could, ask all kinds of questions. And people were very willing to volunteer their knowledge to me because everybody wants to feel smart. So here's this kid asking questions. I'm going to look smart, answer, answer the question. And eventually, I start to ask questions of the senior, more senior guys, and start to understand what they did. And then I decided, uh, yeah, I can do this. Not necessarily being a lawyer, because I wanted to be a lawyer, but when I realized that I could do something else on Bay Street, because there's all kinds of jobs on Bay Street, I go, what is it that I want to do on Bay Street? And then eventually, obviously, it led me to starting my own firm in financial services, helping companies dealing with M&A and all kinds of different things. And I created what we call activist business in Canada. It didn't exist in Canada. And I created it. And then I became the top person doing it in the entire country and built this company, Kingsdale, to be the number one firm, practically, I would say in North America, but by far the number one firm in Canada, mm. advising the senior, senior companies, senior um, uh, CEOs and others on mergers and acquisition, hostile takeover bid, shareholder activism. So activism is if you own a public company and um, are you running a public company as a CEO and you know your investors don't like you, what do they do? 
historically they you they sell their stock and move on. But there's a group of investors who go, I'm not gonna sell my stock. I'm gonna get rid of you because you're incompetent. So guess what? They call me and they go, Wes, I wanna get rid of this guy. And I come up with a strategy to replace him. Can you give us an example of what a at a basic level, what a strategy like that would look like? Okay, so CP Rail is a perfect example. CP Rail is the largest, uh, it's a big railroad in North America. It's, it, it, in Canada, it's like the, it built Canada. Mm -hmm. And they had what people thought were the best management team, the best board. And this guy in, in the U.S., Bill Ackman, came and said, it's a good board, but they're not working together because it's the worst performing railroad in the entire North America. So, but it's not because of the railroad, it's because of the people running it. So he said, I want to fire the CEO, I want to get the CEO fired, I want to replace the board. I want to bring my own team in place. So he called me up and said, Wes, we're going to do that, how do we do that? So we, you know, had a town hall meeting, which is, and it's the first time it's done in Canada, where we went in and said, we're going to show the entire street how we're going to, how bad these guys are and how we're gonna make a difference by bringing a new team. And we had this guy, Hunter Harrison, who was the guy who wrote the book and how to be a, a good railroader. He's gonna be the CEO. And we had to go out there and pitch investors as to why our idea is better than the idea that the current management team is executing. And the management team's uh, excuse was, we're not as good as everybody else because our, our rail tracks are in the West. There's a lot of snow. It's too steep. It made all kinds of excuses. We were able to convince shareholders to vote our guys in and vote those guys out, and they did that. Our guy made $1.8 billion in profits within two years. Wow. Because he turned the company around. So we've created, so that's what we do, but we also defend companies that are under attack by activist investors. So we have companies who would hire us just to put us on the sideline in case somebody wanted to replace their board. They go, okay, you're activated now. And, and we have that market covered in this country. Wow. Sounds like a mercenary almost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say mercenary, but I help people who, uh, you know, who want to get things done. I, I usually, you know, I don't identify the opportunities people do, but I always say that with activist investors, they don't go after bad companies. They go after good companies that are poorly managed. So it's all about people. Like CP Rail, for example, they weren't building new tracks. The tracks are the tracks, but they were managing the asset that they've had. And so when we had a new CEO, he came on board and go, okay, here's how I'm going to manage it differently. And immediately, literally, immediately you start seeing results. And the company now is one of the top performing railroad in North America by far, from the worst to the first. And he did that in less than three years. So would you call somebody who have done that a mercenary, somebody who created that kind of value. Usually mercenaries come in and, yeah, you know, they're just in it for the money. You know, there's times that I turn down a lot of money because it's just not the right mandate for us, and we move on. But we have to believe in the store because we have to sell it to people. And if I sell you a bag of goods, the next store I'm going to sell to you, you're not going to listen to me. You're going to go, no, the last time you pitched me on something, it didn't work out. And so I see that even with investments nowadays, right? There's a lot of people come to me and say, Wes, I want you to invest in this and that. And a lot of them don't work out and they still come and ask for investment. Uh, so you're not gonna get any more money. You get one or two shots of doing good things and if you're not doing it, you, you know, move on.
So for the investors out there or the people that want to pitch to investors, what advice would, because it sounds like it's a sales job more than anything else, almost like a marketing job yep. here. What advice would you share with the people who are out there trying to solicit pitches? Yeah, you know, if I would talk to entrepreneurs that are looking to raise capital, for example, to, to start their businesses, um, they have to be prepared to hear a lot of no's, even though they have the best idea ever. When we're pitching on changing out the management to CP Rail, shareholders are saying, no, we're not going to support you guys. We show them the evidence. We show them the facts. This is how everybody else is doing. This is how our guys are doing. Our guys are doing terrible. No, no, no. I don't believe your facts. I don't believe the information you have in front of you. And we had to convince all we need is just 50.1% of the people voting to win. So we don't need everybody. But we had a strategy with, uh, with Hunter Harrison and Bill Ackman and I. When we go into a room, if I know that they're wasting their time, I close the pitch book. Because they're pitching and they're thinking that we love these guys love us. I know when you're wasting, once you close the book, let's stop the conversation. Why? Because it's a no. We call it the Canadian no. <laughs> a Canadian no, they never say no to your face. They give you all kinds of niceness. And so Bill didn't get it. Bill's from New York. So he didn't get it. And Hunter is from the States too. So I said, you know, I'm going to teach you what the Canadian no is. You smile and you laugh and you. But if I'm pitching you for 40 minutes and you have a book open and you haven't written a note in the book, chances are you're not going to support me. That's a Canadian no. But you have a nice smile on your face and you're pleasant. You're not supporting me. And uh, so we would go into these meetings and we would know when to, we're not going to get someone to, to say yes, even though we had a great plan. Investors walk in. And they go, I can't believe this person is not supporting my business plan. Look at it. It's obvious. I'm going to make them money. But it doesn't work like that. And so you have to be prepared to get a lot of people say no to you. But in the end, what I find is that if you have a really great business idea, people support the entrepreneur. Remember I talked about CP Rail. They had the best asset, but it was poorly managed because they had the wrong people managing it. So you could have the best business idea. If you can't execute that idea, it doesn't really matter. So when you're in a room selling your company or you're selling your pitch, you're selling two things. You're selling your idea and you're selling yourself. And sometimes people just get caught up selling the idea and forget that they have to also sell themselves. So I'm glad you bring that up. You are on CBC's Dragon's Den. Mm -hmm. So you hear a lot of pitches. Mm -hmm. And so how, walk me through your process with when you're hearing the idea and you like the idea, but sometimes you don't like the person or vice versa. Yeah. So you're sitting there and immediately when a person go, come out and go, hello, dragons. I'm like, nah, I ain't going to invest in <laughs> <laughs> Like, you don't have to wait for the pitch. Just the way they carry themselves, the confidence that they have. And I know you're on television and you get a little nervous. But there's times when you see the arrogance immediately. The way that, uh, because we're investors, there's certain decorum that you have to give us, meaning certain respect you have to show us. We're going to be your partners in the business, but we're not running the business. We're just investing in the business. So you have to automatically get us to have confidence in you 
to run the business without interference from us and knowing when to call us to get advice. We're not there to run your business for you. We're just investors. And sometimes they just come out very arrogant and just like, you know, I got the best idea and this is how much money you're going to make and, you know, this is going to be the best investment that you ever made in your life. Well, I'm a dragon. I made a lot of money. You haven't. That's why you're here and you're telling me you're going to make me rich. You know, it's like calm down a little bit, pull it back a little bit. And uh, but if you have track record, tell us about your track record. Hey, guess who, how Warren Buffett became Warren Buffett because he invested behind my company. Then you can have bravado. Then you can show off that kind of, uh, you know, uh, success. But if you haven't done it before and this is your first rodeo, you can't walk into the den with seasoned investors and tell them that you're going to be, you're going to make them rich or this is going to be the best investment ever. I remember when I was um, doing a deal to sell one of my businesses and uh, I was negotiating with the CEO and I said to him, if you buy this company, it's going to be the best deal that you've ever done. And uh, now that sounds like arrogance but I knew what my business could do and would do. And so, but I'm not gonna leave value on the table. I have to talk my book up, but I also have to be able to deliver because there's this thing called earnout, meaning that they're gonna pay you this much now and you're gonna earn the rest later once you deliver on all the things that you say you're gonna do. Well, I can't overpromise because if I was negotiating with someone, and let's say the business is for 100 bucks, I'm gonna pay a $50 up front. I'm going to give you $50 later on. That's the $50 later on is the earnout. If I give you some rosy projections and what I'm going to do, and I start to say, this business is going to do blah, 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 so I can, you pay me more money, you'll go fine. The $50 is going to be based on you achieving those objectives. Mm. Let's say you don't achieve those objectives. What's going to happen? You don't get the $50. So all of a sudden, instead of getting $100 for your business, you only got 50 bucks because you were too aggressive in your projection. But if you're not as, as aggressive, you could say, well, my business is going to do X, Y, Z. But if we do more than X, Y, Z, this is how much more you're going to have to pay me. And people are willing to do that because now you have more skin in the game to deliver on value. And, uh, you know, so there's nothing wrong with people having bravado and walking in and demand certain things. But you have to know when. And you also have to know how. Interesting. You... You have a book coming out. Mm -hmm. um, talk us through the process, because one of the things that you you seem to the story you want to talk about, and, and I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth here, but is about how you you know when you look out into the the room of people, mm -hmm. you don't see people that look like you. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I've been on Bay Street for almost thirty years now, and. Uh, when I look left and right, I don't really see too many black folks at the level that I'm at. You know, because they're not given the same opportunities. One could say, well, Wes, you came from Malvern and look where you are today. You started in the mailroom and look where you are today. But, you know, I was lucky enough to meet a lot of people along the way who had zero bias, none. They just looked at me. They thought I was smart gave me an opportunity. There are less and less people like those on Bay Street today and in corporate Canada today. 
and what we're saying is that we need to go back to that where we don't have to we don't care about what school people go to where they live we just look at them and go we think this person can do the job we think they're smart or i would love to mentor this person to get to a certain level and uh, but why is it years ago for example not too too long ago we had no gender diversity in boardrooms it really was middle-aged white men now there's nothing wrong with having middle-aged white men in the boardroom but if you exclude others women uh people of color black people indigenous people then you know you're not building a company that's truly diverse and if the business is not truly diverse the business can't be uh it can't reach its full potential if we're all in the same room and we we all coming up with an idea for a podcast right now we all look the same chances are the podcast is going to cater to a certain audience that look like us and think like us so the audience is not going to be broader so as a result of that you're not reaching your full potential in terms of who you want to listen to this podcast our lived experiences are too similar so we're going to talk about things that you know if 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 we're all on base street we're going to talk about base street stuff if we have different experiences i'm from jamaica i came from nothing you know you uh, came from a different background all of us have different experiences all of a sudden it's such a we're going to include so much more people that we touch on the topics we touch on the podcast so what i say to business leaders is you're leaving money on the table by not being diverse we're not saying we don't want middle-aged white men in the room what we're saying is that if you exclude others your business can't be as successful as it would be had you include uh diversity and so diversity to me i encourage people to say it's not doing a favor to someone it's doing a favor to your company because your company is going to be better off when i look at what i've accomplished on bay street being a black guy i've made a lot of money for a lot of people a lot of people my companies uh, uh cumulatively hire over 1000 people paying taxes buying homes and cars and contributing to this beautiful society could you imagine if people go you shouldn't belong where you are Wes is Canada better off for it is our economy better off for it absolutely not our economy is better off when people like myself come with their ideas and we get support from others to make it uh, turn it into reality and that's why I really like uh being on dragons den because that's what we do we turn people's vision and dreams into reality by giving them fuel and the fuel is capital and another fuel we give them is our time and our know-how and then we create these very successful people because we have confidence in them to back them financially and also to give them some guidance uh, mentally are you finding that there's a shift happening towards more inclusionary in the boardrooms yeah it's you know i i started the black north initiative uh for that very reason where companies have signed pledges to say that they're going to support hiring blacks and indigenous people and making sure that their boardrooms and c-suite uh are inclusive that's happening some may say it's not happening fast enough but hey um it's been it's a problem that's been around for a very long time some of it intentional we talk we talk about systemic racism systemic racism is not just one individual saying we're not going to do that it's a system saying if somebody look a certain way treat them a certain way 
So when I'm driving, I have a, a, a one of my cars is a, is a nice Ferrari. Um, and um, I was driving it on Bay Street two years ago. Going to the office, about to turn to my parking garage, and this guy stopped me and said, hey, I'm a criminal lawyer in Toronto. Give me a call if you're looking for a lawyer. Well, that guy's ignorant, but a system is saying if you see a black guy driving a Ferrari, he doesn't, live on Bay, he doesn't work on Bay Street. He's got to have another job for a living. Or I pulled up my car, same car, dressed like I'm dressed right now, which is pretty fly. And somebody <laughs> gave me $20 to valet their car for them when I got out of my Ferrari. There's something that's saying, well, that guy doesn't belong in the Ferrari, must be valeting the Ferrari. Well, how many valet guys dressed like I do? So there's a, there's a system conditioned people to think a certain way. Some people take advantage of it by going, okay, I'm going to do this intentionally but the system says these people if they look or dress a certain way they belong they belong uh, you know in in a certain environment and that's one of the reasons why we're the the suit in in the mailroom because i already had a strike being a young black guy i didn't want another strike dressing poorly and uh so one strike is okay but two strikes Three strikes are out, as the expression goes. Mm. I didn't want too many strikes. So when I walk into a boardroom, I try to eliminate as many strikes as possible, try to eliminate as many stereotypes that people have as possible of me. I didn't want them stereotype how I dress. I didn't want to stereotype uh, how I speak. So I tried to enunciate properly. I tried to be articulate when I, when I speak. And I didn't want them to, um, I didn't want to act angry whereby if they say something out of line or something offensive, I respond in an angry way. I'm very calm. So again, eliminate as many strikes as possible, and that helped me as I climbed the ladder uh, going up, up the, the, the corporate ladder and boardroom in, in, on Bay Street. There must have been a lot of times, though, where you wanted to respond with anger. Oh, there's a ton. I remember I was on a deal, and uh, this guy... It was like it was a huge deal. It was a merger, big merger, and there were like fifteen people on the conference call. Investment bankers, lawyers, the CEO of both companies. It was like I said, there was a huge, huge merger at the time, and everybody was going around the table. All the advisors giving their advice on the deal. The lawyers went, the bankers went, PR people went. My turn to go, and I spoke up, and one of the advisors, the bankers in front of everybody on the call that this is the worst advice I've ever seen or heard an advisor give to their client in 25 years practicing. Never heard an advice that after I gave my advice. Now, you know, it was like, you know, we got to take this guy outside and have a conversation with him. <laughs> but that's what he wanted me to do. Wanted that reaction. He wanted that reaction. He didn't get it. And I remember after the call was over, I got a call from a very senior investment banker that was on the file. And it was well-respected, a white man that was the only black dude. And I've been out, you know, I, I literally, in my entire career in Bay Street, I can tell you that I've worked with maybe two black people. Wow, that's low. That are clients. Mm -hmm. Or that are not a clients. I have no black clients in all those years but maybe who were working for a client. Hmm. So it's not, it's not a big number. 
so this man this man called me up and he said Wes I'm gonna give you some advice if you want to be successful on Bay Street you have to grow elephant skin and he hang up the phone in other words what happened to you in that boardroom you can't let it affect you because you're never gonna be successful on Bay Street and he knew I was seething after hearing that from this guy but he's telling me to essentially calm down. You're going to go through a lot more of that. If you want to be successful, figure out how to deal with that. And I didn't retaliate, gave my advice. Deal uh, came to a close at the end. Everything I recommended and said on that, in that meeting happened. And to this man's credit, he sent an email to the entire team apologizing to me for what he said on that initial conference call. Had I acted in an angry way and threatened him and swear at him, how would people react in that room? They would have thought, maybe he's right. Yeah. Maybe Wes is dumb. But I didn't. And But he, he, it wouldn't have given him the opportunity to give me a graceful apology. He, would, he felt bad because, because, yeah, if I'd acted in a certain way and I was right, it wouldn't have mattered. He was still angry. You know, it doesn't matter. That's what we expect from guys like these. But I have to pave the way for other people coming up behind me. And I can't have their journey tainted because I, I poisoned the well for them because of my behavior, because it was so arrogant, because it was so, you know, pig-headed in terms of how I get, got things done. I had to make sure that when they get in the room, people compare them to me, but in a positive way. If I pave the way right, they're going to walk in the room and people are going to say, well, I hope you're as good as Wes because Wes was really good. But not. But if I was an asshole in that room, they're going to think every black guy coming up behind me or like that. And I didn't want to do that. Wow. Incredible. And you find that, that having that thick skin, you still have to maintain that today. You have to maintain it today doesn't matter how much success you've achieved. doesn't matter. I told you about the Ferrari. Yep. It's in, while I'm in the skin. So, yeah. my question, why is it, I mean, I'm not, but like, why do you, why is it that like, as a black man, like, you're not allowed to get mad? <laughs> but like, it's like in the same situation, if, yeah. like, you know, let's say a white guy, same thing, he's like, oh, like, I'm this, I'm this guy, and they're like, oh, you are the, whoever you are. Yeah. But like, a black guy's like, you have to just, oh, no, I'm not allowed to get mad, because yeah. then I'm going to look like, the angry black guy, you know, yeah. you know, a lot of women is like, I don't want to be that angry black woman. You know, and this is why is it like, I feel like as black people are not allowed to get upset in public. Yeah, I, I think it, in, to a certain extent, it intimidates people. Mm. And um, because the, the view is, if you're known as an angry person or volatile person, nobody wants to, you know, get you volatile or get you angry because you're known as an angry person. Mm. And so everybody's kind of like, I better be careful. Or if I say something, let's see what's, what he's going to do because he's angry, he's volatile. And, and so it's when you have that stereotype that you have to deal with, you have to act the opposite way. See, other cultures don't really have that. They don't have that. You know, you see a black guy, the way he walks is intimidating sometimes, you know. Mm. You see with Jefferson walking down the street, you <laughs> see, you know, it, it's intimidating. They, 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 you know, the way, they, 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 everything about sometimes could intimidate people. And we're not talking about, you know, just think about a, 
an older, my, in my neighborhood, I live in a very expensive neighborhood in Toronto. My boys are, uh, my, my, they're mixed, but they more look like black than, my, my, my wife is white, but they look more like me than their mom. But they're big boys. One of my boys is like, uh, you know, 6'4", and he's like, was a football player, and he's like, big guy. But when he's walking down the street, he would see some older woman or you know older man coming across, and they would cross to the other side of the street. Not because he doesn't have a nice look on his face, it's because his presence intimidate them. Mm. Now, so he knows that. Now, if they seen a white kid looks exactly like him walking down the street, they wouldn't have the same reaction because they don't have the 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 reputation of being you know hostile mm. and you know so we it's something that we have to live with but the more of people like myself in that boardroom when something like that is said and we don't react in a stereotypical way the more it changes that narrative mm. and that's the reason why we have to carry that along with us and realize that it's bigger than just us it's not just oh man you just hurt my feeling mm. it's a little bit more than that yes my feelings are hurt of course it is however if I react a certain way, it's just gonna destroy. It's gonna destroy the opportunity for somebody else. Like we also have to appreciate the fact that those investment bankers and lawyers on the phone—they're hiring young lawyers and young investment bankers. And if the way Wes acted as a senior guy on Bay Street to them, they're gonna go. I don't want some young black guy coming in. This gonna have an impact on the person coming up after me. Mm. So I know better. I have to do better. And, uh, and there's not going to be a time, I don't think in my lifetime, but I'm hoping in my kid's lifetime, that that stereotype is going to go away. My son is one of my sons working in my you shop. You think it'll right go now. away or you just want it to go away? It's going to take, it's, it's taking a long time, yeah. right? It's taking a long time and it's really, it's really you know, upsetting that it's taking so long. But it is changing slowly not fast enough as i say in the book you know when it's happening to you it's not happening fast enough when you're taking all the licks but i'm hoping that with my kids what i do today advance the ball a little bit martin luther king advance the ball a little bit malcolm x they advance the ball and uh our generation will advance a little bit and my kids generation will advance it but what's going to happen between my generation and my kids it's going to be way faster than what happened between the 60s and before that, way faster. Yeah, And so that's why I know it's going to happen, but it's never going to be race because you're going to always have people who, I don't like this person because they're gay. I don't like this person because um, uh, she's a woman. I don't like this person because we're always going to have people in society that just are like that. We can't eliminate that. But we have a lot more good people that are not like that. The problem with it is a lot of those good people aren't speaking up. Mm. I can tell you that there's a lot more fans that I have on Bay Street than detractors. Mm. There was 15 people on that conference call, only one person made an insens insensitive remark. One. Yeah. Yet sometimes we focus on that one jerk on the call. That, did the something loudest. In, that was the loudest, that did something insensitive. But because of the fact that the 14 other people said nothing gave him a, an amplified voice to say what he said yeah. if somebody if 
one of those persons, the CEO, would have said, hey, Jim, that's not appropriate. That's not appropriate. If one person, and the one person who felt like I felt and understand, he didn't do it on the call. He called me after, yeah. privately, yeah. to support me. Why didn't you support me publicly? And so the reason why we, we're talking about Black North and all the things we're talking about and Black Lives Matters and social justice issues is so that the good people that are in the majority speak up. The reason why we had the actions that we had in 2020 was because there are so many good people speaking up and going in the streets and marching and saying, this is unacceptable. They weren't tolerating it. And all of a sudden, the bad guys were like in hiding. They weren't saying anything anymore until the movement started to change and then they felt empowered to start saying stuff again because the good people weren't speaking up. They stopped speaking up. So that's my next question for you. How do you maintain, and you, I mean the collective we in this mm -hmm. example, how do we maintain ongoing support for these mm -hmm. progressive movements yeah. in our society without waiting for an event, an, an, yeah. an incident? I think that we have to appreciate the fact that um, it's not a moment. When something happens, it becomes a moment. We can make it into a movement by keeping it front of mind. We're busy people. You may be well-intentioned in terms of this happened and you're outraged about it. But you have your life to live. You have relationships to manage. You have all these things to do. And then all of a sudden, this thing that you were so upset about is not top of mind anymore until it reoccurs. And it's almost like it triggers your memory to say, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I don't like that. But then it goes away again. But if you had to live with it every day, it's going to be on top of your mind every single day. And so with, with allies, because allies don't go through the struggles that we go through every day, it only, they only become allies sometimes when something triggers them. And, uh, and, but if they had to live with that, they realize that, no, no, no. This has to change. This has to change. And that's the reason why we have to keep in our consciousness that, you know, when we see things, you know, there's times when, you know, we, somebody would be telling an insensitive joke. There's five people in a room. And somebody tell an off-color joke. And what do we do? We think it's off-putting, but we nervously laugh. Hmm. Nervously laugh. Why do we do that? It's almost like we want to feel that we want the person who made the offensive joke comfortable. So we smile, we <laughs> nervous a laugh to make them comfortable. Why? But if we had said, let's say all of us are black guys and we'll make an insensitive comment about another race. And one of us say, it's not cool. Then that person who made the insensitive joke is going to be on the defensive now. And what they generally do? Well, I didn't really mean it like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I meant was... Yeah. yeah, what I meant was... And they start to explain themselves. Why do we give the nervous chuckle to make them comfortable and to make them make a second joke, inappropriate joke? When we say, it's not cool. And then they, they're not going to say that again around us. Is that fear of conflict? It is. Because we don't want to 
feel that we're you know we're we're creating conflict, but that person is creating conflict by what they say, and they're looking for allies to support them on their journey in creating conflict and and discord. So if we really don't appreciate that, and even though it's not against us, but it's against our principles, we don't agree with someone saying Islamophobic jokes or homophobic jokes or whatever. And we're telling them that when you're around me, that's not a joke that's cool. We can't be afraid to say that to people, but we go, we want to be everybody's friends. I don't want you know him to not come to meetings with me anymore. So if I'm in the boardroom, not going to make any jokes, he's going to, people get over it. They get over it. And that's what I find when I speak up is that people get where I'm coming from, but they ain't going to do it again. And, 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 but if I, if I entertain the idea, I got to keep entertaining the idea. I remember I was um, in, a, uh, in a company, and, and this guy, is, uh, he's a very religious guy. And, uh, and I told him to dress up like as Santa Claus, and he's like, he doesn't believe in Santa Claus. He doesn't want to dress up like Santa Claus. The boss told him that, hey, you got to be, uh, be Santa Claus. Santa Claus is, you know, I'm a Jehovah's Witness, so I don't believe in Santa Claus either. Well, guess what happens when I when they told me about Santa Claus? I said, "Dude, I'm not dressing up like Santa Claus because that's not what I do." They never asked me, but the guy didn't believe it like me. They kept asking him every single year because he wouldn't say he doesn't want to do it because mm. <laughs> he doesn't want to create conflict. Yeah. So every single year, he's a chubby guy. He's got a big belly. He looks like Santa Claus. Everybody wants him to be Santa Claus, and he hates it, but he won't tell them that he doesn't want to do it. Out of fear of conflict. Out of fear of conflict. And, uh, and there's times when if we just say what our principles are and say, no, I'm not going to do this. No, I don't tolerate that. It's amazing how many problems and issues that you know, we avoid as a result of doing that. I want to I ask you about the book. You, you talk about your journey through life. You know, you talk about growing up and some of the struggles. Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that, what that means yeah. to you. Maybe even share some of that story. So when I was a, a child, I was about um, uh, 12 months old, and um, my sister was four, and my brother Ian uh, was, uh, I think Ian was about six months. He was younger than me at the time. And uh, this uh, gentleman was riding by on a bicycle, and he heard us crying inside the house. And he stopped by and asked my sister, what's going on? My sister said, the porridge is, all, is done, and uh, the kids are hungry, which is me and my brother. Again, I was 18 months old. And, um, and he said, where's your mother? My sister said, I don't know. When did she leave? I don't know. We just know the porridge is over. She left a, a, a pot of porridge. And for us to eat, and I served the kids. I ate it, and uh, there's none left. It was clear what happened. We were abandoned in that house by my mother, by our mother. And so my grandmother was working on the plantation at the time. The gentleman uh, rode his bicycle, went to the plantation, the banana plantation. It was my grandmother working at the time, and got my grandmother and said, your grandkids are abandoned in the house. And that's when I started to live with my grandmother. She came and grabbed the three of us, and she had like about seven kids with her at the time from other kids of hers. 
and then she raised us like her own. And, um, you know, so that's kind of how I got started. And she brought us in a plantation house. And in Jamaica, in St. Thomas, it's very, very poor. And uh, so the plantation house was built in a, in, on stilts and five-foot stilts because in that area, there was flooding all the time. And uh, there was two bedrooms, and all of us lived in that two-bedroom place. There's like about 12 of us in there with my grandmother. And that's how she supported us, by working on the plantation. The plantation owners would give uh, the, that shack to the owner, the, the, the workers, because they didn't pay them much. Uh, and that's where they would raise their family. So it doesn't matter how many kids you have, you'd get either a one-bedroom or a two-bedroom. And if you have multiple kids, multiple grandkids, you figure it out. We didn't have running water inside. We didn't have electricity. And uh, I didn't know, I didn't have television. I didn't watch TV until, you know, when I was like, um, I went to my friend's house and, you know, that had a couple of dollars and and, and, and look through the window and watch their television. But for us, we didn't have that at home for, for, for the whole time growing up. And, um, you know, so it was, it was, it was a lot of struggle. Uh, my mom came to, uh, to get me at 11 and she brought me to the city to live with her. I didn't know why. And my mom was incredibly abusive. And at 13, my mom packed my bags and threw me out of the house and said, you're on your own now. And between 13 and 16, I lived on my own in Jamaica. At 16, my dad uh, said, come live with me in Canada. And I uh, moved to Canada September 27, 1985. I lived in Malvern. My dad and I didn't really get along and see eye to eye. And two years later, my senior year of high school, I moved out. And I've been on my own ever since. High school, you go to? I went to Pearson. Mal- I grew up in, uh, yeah? yeah? Yeah. I went to Malvern. I yeah. grew up in Malvern. Pearson, less to be Pearson, man. Yeah. yeah right, by, right, by, uh, right by Malvern Townsend. Yes. <laughs> and when I moved there, Malvern Townsend, it was being built. Yeah? It wasn't built yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't built yet, man. So yeah. I, uh, and I used to walk to, so we live at uh, Mal- Nielsen and McLevin, which is down the street from mm. Malvern. And, uh, and that's where, I, that's where I, I, I moved to. And literally when I landed at Pearson Airport, I knew that I was going to be successful in Canada. Hmm. I didn't know how successful. Why? Because of what I left behind. I thought I was going to work in the plantation, on the plantation for the rest of my life. My brother, my brothers were working there. My sisters were working there. Nobody left that neighborhood. That's your, that's what you do. You don't even go to school. My brother went to, left school from when he was like, grade three and uh, so that was the life and then when my mom came to get me at 11 I thought I was moving to moving on up and all I moved into was abuse and neglect and so when she kicked me out at 13 it was liberating for me because I wouldn't have to subject myself to all the things that the, the trauma she was putting me through and uh, but at 13 to 16 when you have to fend for yourself as a as a young kid it taught you a lot of things. But when I came here, I didn't see that object poverty that I left behind. I didn't see any of it. And I go, how could I not be successful here? Because I don't have poor people here. I didn't see no poor people. I went to Malvern, the toughest neighborhood in the country, and I didn't see poor people. I didn't see people living the way I was living in Jamaica or how my grandmother was living. I didn't see shacks. I didn't see people like wearing raggedy clothes. I didn't wear, I didn't have shoes when I was a kid. 
I didn't see people walking around barefoot in Malvern. So how could I not be successful? But what's my definition of success? My definition of success was exactly what my dad was doing. He had a nice big car. He lived in a middle-class home in Scarborough, and he worked at a factory on an assembly line with my stepmom. That's success for me. So that's the path that I was going to take versus the path that I had in Jamaica. So that's how I knew I was going to be successful based on my dad's definition, based on what I saw my dad doing. He was a successful man. Again, when I went to Bay Street, that's when I know that there are different levels of success. Perspective. Perspective. So my perspective changed. I did not want to work on an assembly line after I came to Bay Street. I knew that life wasn't for me. I'd never do that. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but I saw an alternative. And an alternative could, that could not only change my life, but my kids' lives when I have kids. And it could actually change black people's lives. I, didn't, I wasn't that deep when I was pushing the mail cart around. right? But I, w- I knew that there was going to be something different that's going to happen in my life. That wasn't the path that I thought, it definitely wasn't the path I had in Jamaica, but it wasn't the path that I thought I would take when I was in Canada. I wasn't going to take my dad's path anymore. There's a lot of parts to the story where things happened that were outside your control. Yep. We can call it luck, fate, yep. whatever. For all of, you had to go through all of those, overcome all of those, just to get to the part where you you succeed past them and move forward. Mm-hmm. But not everybody has the ability to actually get past all of those. Yeah, And I think one of the things I picked up from reading from your book is that it shouldn't just simply be that you have to deal with these and you have to overcome these just to, to live a meaningful life. And that's where the systemic problem comes mm-hmm. in. How do we change that? Again, by, by good people standing up and, and doing stuff. Let's say I'm one of those good people. I went through all that stuff, and I go, well, if I can get through it, you can get through it too. And I turn my back on those people struggling because I go, you can do it too. But not everyone was built the same way I was built. You know, for me, I was lucky that I grew up in Jamaica. And people go, why? You ran from Jamaica to come to Canada. Why were you lucky? I was lucky because the effect of systemic racism was very different for me. Because I grew up, when I went to school, I didn't have, bare, I didn't have shoes, yes, I went barefoot, but my school teacher was black. And the principal of the school was black. And there was a police station in town, and the guy in charge of the police station was black, and all the police officers were black. And when my brothers got in trouble and they went to court, the judge was black. All the people were in high positions. Business people were black. So I knew that poverty was a problem for me, and I can't educate myself to get to that level because I don't have the money. But had I had the money or a supporter, I could become a judge. I could become a principal. I could become a police officer and a commander. I could do anything. My color wouldn't prevent me from doing it. When I came to Canada, I came with that attitude. So when I was on Bay Street pushing a mail cart, I never thought it was impossible 
to be successful on Bay Street because I'm black. I didn't see that. I didn't see the color as a barrier. I saw access as a barrier. Well, if I was born in Canada and I didn't have a black school teacher, I didn't see black business people, I didn't see black police officers, and along the way people are telling me that because I'm black or they show me by their attitude that because I'm black, I don't belong, it's going to weigh in my psyche. It's going to limit what I think I can accomplish. And so that's why I'm, I'm glad that I, I was exposed to those people in Jamaica because it didn't limit what I think I could accomplish. And if you think about it, look at some of the most successful black people in this country. They are immigrants in a lot of cases, and they're from places where it's dominant, predominantly black, Africa, the Caribbean. And there's a story there where they had to overcome something. There's, they have to overcome something. In Jamaica, I probably wouldn't be this successful if I was in Jamaica because the barrier that I would have to overcome would be poverty. And once you're in that in a place of extreme poverty, it's very difficult to get out of it. So even though I wouldn't have to fight about my race, I would have to fight about my status and my class and being poor. And as a result of that, it would limit my growth and my potential. So... To that point about overcoming the extreme poverty and that limitation, that ceiling, you you didn't have a, you had a negative relationship with your mother mm-hmm. and then an eventual negative relationship with your father. But in one, from one perspective, them moving you around is what led you to, he, to hear. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, my, gran- my mother led me to my grandmother. Okay. And thank God she did that because she, was, she became my center. I saw the way she worked and how hard she worked, and I'm like, I want to be like this person. So I spent 11, almost 11 years looking at and learning from this kind, gentle woman that molded me. I spent only three years with my mom and two years with my dad. So I spent way more time with the person who had good in my life. Now, it's not that my, my dad was, my dad was a, a man and he owned up to his responsibility and he brought me over to Canada. The problem was he left me in Jamaica for 16 years and I became a man without down him. there, without him. And when I came to Canada at 16, he wanted to be a father. It's too late. I went through too much. I went through living with my grandmother in a plantation house and having to go to school barefoot. And then I went to live with my mom, who was extremely abusive for three years. And then I lived on my own for three years, looking after myself. And now I moved to Canada, and that you want to be dad. It's kind of too late for that. This is a man now. I'm a man, but he didn't think so. He thought I was a kid, but I was a man. So we didn't get along for that reason. And, uh, you know, but I kept on going back to my grandmother. I had way too much time with her for my mother, for me to turn out like my mom and for me to do the things my mom did to me, to other people. And I just, I just kept on having her as my center. And, uh, and that's why I'm the person that I am today because she was so kind. Think about it. You have seven kids already, grandkids, three more is abandoned, and you went, you got them. You were 60 years old, brought them all into your house, 
and you're on a you're on a plantation uh, uh, worker salary, and you didn't complain or argue and be frustrated at these kids. You know, when my mom, you know, when I went to live with my mom, my mom wasn't a rich person, and there was times when she had no food, no money, and she would take it out on us. She would literally take it out on us. She took all her frustration out on us physically. My grandmother never did that. Never did that. So why would I emulate my mom's behavior when my grandmother's behavior? You remember we, I, we talk about one person would say something negative in a room of 15 people and we focus on the one person. Mm. It's almost like I forgot about the 11 years I spent with my grandmother grooming me and I focused on the three bad years I spent with my, my mom and that's what informed how my life is going to be those three bad years. Those three bad years, I put them behind me and I learned from them. And I go, I'll never, ever do this to another human being, ever. But all the things that my grandmother did for me in 11 years, I'm going to do that to as many people as I possibly can. And I'm going to change their lives just like she changed mine. And the day she died, she died in poverty. And, uh, and I remember when I went to see her before, when I left Jamaica, I went back when I was about 21 years old. I have a picture on my desk of me pointing to the shack. And I told her, I remember it like yesterday, I'm going to get you out of this shack. And she died in that shack. I never got the opportunity to get her out of it. You know, and, um, and, and she never saw my success. She never saw it. She saw it. She knew I went to Canada. She knew I was going to school and stuff, but she never saw my success. My mother is alive. She's seen the success, but she had nothing to do with it. I'm successful in spite of her. In spite of her, I'm successful. And so the biggest regret in my life is that my grandmother, I didn't, because when I got my big break, I started this company as a vice president. That's my big break. And I wrote to mama and I said, mama, guess what? I'm a vice president now. I had to go and open that letter because she died like within a couple of weeks of me getting that job. She fell off a bed that she was on, hit her head, and there was nobody around her to help her. She spent her entire life looking after other people's kids. Her entire life. And when she was in need, there was nobody there to help her. Those are the things I live with every single day because I just wish that she was there to just see a glimpse, a glimpse of... Uh, of what she worked so hard to get to get one of her kid to go, yeah, I'm proud of him or her or what they're doing and, uh, and paid for it and seen me paying it forward to help other kids like me in communities where she grew, raised us. So when you talk about what's our responsibility, our responsibility is to change people's lives and to change things, not to go fend for yourself, imagine if my grandmother had said that I wouldn't be here today you know she was selfless she was industrious and it's my duty to be selfless and industrious as well beautiful amazing I'm sure she'd be absolutely proud of you you you've accomplished so much and it's incredibly inspiring just listening to you tell your story um and this is what your book is mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. and talks about your life talks about all of the this journey a lot of people say I'm a little bit too, maybe I was a little too vulnerable. In the book. In the book. 
if I didn't tell that story, first of all, it would dishonor my grandmother. Could you imagine that? She worked so hard to, to, to get me here. And I don't talk about that part of my life. Mm. I don't talk about the poverty, what we went through, and the kindness that she showed to me. I don't talk about that. I just focus on my fancy life now. I would be dishonoring her. It would, be sh- it would be shameful for me to do that. But how about the physical abuse and all the things I suffered at the hands of my mother and my stepfather? I would be dishonoring kids that are going through that today if I didn't talk about it. Because what I would be saying, it's, it's shameful to talk about that stuff. And that's why it continues. That's why that behavior yes. continues because nobody wants to talk about it because it's shameful. Again, we have, we're, we're protecting the perpetrators of those actions, making them feel comfortable because we're, sh- we're ashamed to talk about what they're doing and their actions. Because it makes it, like, especially I know like, families and it's like, oh, you have, like, you say the uncle yeah. touched this kid. We don't yeah. want to say it because it makes, yeah. it makes, it makes me look, look bad, bad because I'm his brother. Yeah. But it's like, no, like, you got to say something to to stop, stop that it. behavior. Yeah. And, and, and that's really, at the end of the day, so when I talk about that, I want kids who are going through that to go, well, a guy like Wes is going through, went through it and he's talking yes. about it. I should talk about it. I should talk to somebody. I should get help. Because Wes didn't have anyone to talk to and he had to work it out himself. Because I didn't have a role model. I didn't have people that I could go to to talk about this and for them to do something about it. When my mom was abusing me physically, and my stepfather forced me to go to the police station. And I walked into the police station. It's clear that I'm battered. The policeman recognized me. And I didn't want to go to talk to a sergeant. And he recognized me. And he said, what happened? I told him. He put me in his police car and he brought me home. And he sat my mom down and said, don't do this to him anymore. And he left. <laughs> beat you for telling it right <laughs> what do you think is going to happen to me 100 yeah. percent. i want kids to know that that's not cool find somebody you trust and find somebody who's going to do something about it that's going to help you and uh, so if i cover all those things up and just talk about the fancy suit and the ferrari and uh the nice you know, uh, businesses that I run and being on Dragon's Den and all this kind of stuff. You think those kids that are going through this is going to think they're going to ever be like West Hall? No. Ever? They'll never get there. They'll never think that way. And so once we get to a certain level of success in life and we've gone through struggles to get there, the duty is on us to tell people what the struggle was like and, uh, and to help them to, to, to appreciate that they're not alone. So you feel a sense of responsibility to do this? I do. Uh, you know, I, I remember when it was coming up the corporate ladder, um, I, would, I was ashamed to bring people to my house. Because not that it wasn't clean, but it's the neighborhood that I was in. You know, and I was ashamed to bring people there. I was working as hard as I could. And I was living where I could afford. I wasn't living beyond my means, but I was ashamed of it. Why was I ashamed? 
because society tells you that you have to achieve certain levels of success if you're in a certain job. Literally, was in a, I was a vice president when I got my first big break, but I just, I can't go, oh, guess what? I became vice president. I'm going to move to Rosedale. <laughs> Some people do that. I wasn't one of yeah. those dudes, okay? <laughs> All right? Those people are living above their means They're very living quickly. way above their means. So I was a vice president, and I was living in a very, very modest house that I bought not too long before I left the mailroom. Then I bought that place, and I renovated myself. And then I worked and worked and worked to pay as much of the mortgage as I possibly can. Every single extra dollar we made went into the mortgage. Hmm. And, and by the way, uh, people are afraid to loan black people money. Banks are afraid to loan them money for houses, for cars, for kids, for their uh, tuition, you know, to start businesses. Black people are debt averse. Bankers, I'm telling you, bankers, remember bankers out there? Black people are debt averse. I put every single penny that I could muster up into the mortgage to pay it off. And I paid off that mortgage in five years. Wow. That's I incredible. I paid it off in five years. It was a 25-year mortgage that I paid off. But guess what? As a result of me paying off that mortgage, I had equity in my house. So when I started Kingsdale, guess what? I was embarrassed to live in that house, hmm. but I had equity and I was able to borrow money against that house to start my firm. And uh, so now I live in a nice neighborhood, a nice house. I ain't embarrassed anymore, but there's times when you have to go through that. And I learned later on that there was nothing to be embarrassed about. That house was mine. I owned it. There was pride that I had. I should have nothing but pride. But society tells me that if you're in, if you look a certain way, you have a certain job, you should live a certain place, in a certain place. You should have a certain address, or you should drive a certain car, or you should fly in the front of the plane. It 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 condition you to 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 be a success story, because you have this big job. Well, the big job kind of comes with certain risk. If I take on that house in Rosedale when I get the big job and I, it didn't work out for me in six months or in a year, you're stuck with the there's house. There's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a problem, and I just didn't want to go through that problem. So I waited until I absolutely know that this gig is going to last before I decided to invest in that next house. Smart. Mm. Amazing. So October 4th, the book drops. October 4th, it drops, and uh, I'm really, really excited about it because I'm just... You know, it's to me, it's like a gift that I'm given to kids that kind of went through what I went through. And uh, and even adults that are going through what I went through. What I went through, because of all the things I talk about, starting a company, dealing with systemic racism, being abused by my, grand, my mother, my, my, my mother, being loved uh, unconditionally by my grandmother and, and the way she treated me like, like a prince. Uh, there are people going through that stuff, and uh, I want them to kind of read and appreciate that you're not alone. And um, so the journey is really, the book is really about talking about that journey. And by the way, you could read the entire book and you have no idea what I do for a living. Because it's not about what it's I do for a living. Now. It's really about the journey. 
And if anyone can take, if I can take that journey and be successful, anyone can do it. You know, I should be mentally scarred by all the things that I went through. Literally, I should, I should be. Um, but I'm not. But I'm not resentful either. I'm not resentful for it because it made me the person I am. If my life was smooth and easygoing, I probably wouldn't donate a dollar to charity because I don't really care. There's a lot of guys who are very successful and they, they came out of the ghetto, but they're not looking back because they go, I don't have to. I don't have to. Some of us have to look back. You know, I always say as well that, you know, when you come from poverty, you have to walk like this. Mm. You're pulling and you're grabbing. You're pulling yourself up, but you're bringing somebody along with you as well. You have to do that. Because if you don't do that, you're going to leave so many people behind. And, uh, and I'm hoping that, you know, based on the examples that I've set, the things I've accomplished, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for a whole generation of people. Being the first black person on Dragon's Den, I'm doing that for a whole generation of people. I'm not doing it because I want West Hall to get a pat on his, on his back. I want kids to look up and go, I can be like that guy. You know, when I um, came here, in, uh, when I was um, in 1992, my, I applied for because I want the rest of my family to come to Canada. I want them to take everybody out of Jamaica, out of poverty. The only way to get my siblings, because I have no full brothers and sisters, was to get my mom over here. I had to. That's how the immigration law worked. So even though my mom did all those terrible things to me, to help my brothers and sisters, I had to help her first so that they can see the line of uh, relationship because we don't have the same last names. None of us do. And so my mom came, my two sisters, two brothers, to live with me. And uh, my two brothers, one was deported back to Jamaica because he went down the wrong path. Another one was murdered because they didn't see a role model like me. They saw me going to the mailroom job, and they go, I don't want to work in the mailroom. I don't want to do what you're doing. And they took a different path. Now, had they seen somebody like me came from where they came from and be successful, would they have gone to deal drugs or steal cars? They probably would have gone, I want to be like that guy who came from St. Thomas like I did and is now a successful guy in Bay Street or whatever profession that they chose to be in. I didn't, they didn't have someone like me to look up to. So who am I to hide my success from people like those who want to be, who want to see somebody like me there being represented? So when they have a path of going bad, good, they can go, I'm going to go the good path because Wes has accomplished a lot more than the guys in the bad path have accomplished. So I owe it also to my murdered brother to make sure that the way I live my life is an example to young people who have choices to make and hopefully by the way I live my life they're going to choose to follow the path that I followed amazing this has been incredible Wes thank yes. you so much for thank coming you. in thank you my pleasure we appreciate you sharing your story man this has been what a journey what a journey you're on and I say on because I think there's just still so much 
that's coming. And I'm still a young dude, man. You're still a young man, <laughs> and, and, and a guy like you, your your brain is wired to to do and build more. So we're excited to watch it happen, and we're excited to read the book October fourth, and uh, we're super excited for it. Thank you for coming. We really well, appreciate well, it. Well, thank you guys for having a great conversation. No, thank always you. a pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it.